five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. Our guest this week wears many hats in the space sector, but we will focus on one of them. After having been an early key employee at SpaceX, Buland Altan is now the CEO of Mineric, a laser communications company. Space lasers? Trust me, it is as cool as it sounds, both from a technology as well as a business potential perspective. I share Buland's view that optical is the future of communications. Find out why in this episode. If you enjoy the podcast in general, please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple, so more people can find out about it. Thank you. In other updates, I am thrilled to just have collaborated on a brand new MOOC about the space economy, jointly with one of the world's top universities, EPFL. There's a link in the episode notes, but I will do a separate small episode just about this in a few days. I think a lot of you will love this new course. Now, as usual, here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors, and then please enjoy my conversation with Buland. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's another episode of the Space Business Podcast. I have another really great guest today. It's Buland Alton, the CEO of Mineric. Welcome, Buland. Uh, thank you very much, Rafael, and ha- thanks for having me here on this podcast. It's it's a pleasure. I know saying CEO of Mineric, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, but you're, you're actually wearing many hats, so I'm going to start by asking you to give a short bio, and then, yeah, let's, let's start with the short bio, and then we go from there. Yes, thank you. Um, so as said, uh, my name is Buland Alton. I am the CEO of Mineric. Um, I've been in the space industry now for about two decades, and what I, what one would say is I've been two decades in really the new space industry. I've after a brief uh, school over in uh, Germany, I also came here for uh, for getting an education over at Stanford. I got my master's in aer- uh, aeronautics, astronautics. When I graduated, it was 2004. The whole topic of new space didn't exist, and I decided to join this tiny little company that uh, Elon Musk was building called SpaceX. That was the early days when it was a garage shop. I got to uh, I got the uh, amazing luck of joining them on the early days, and uh, I stayed there until the end of 2017. Amongst others, I was in roles of vice president of avionics guidance navigation control, and then the mission assurance vice president for the Starlink constellation. I left uh, the, the company around 2017, at the end of 2017, and uh, became an angel investor in European new space ecosystem. Found some amazing companies there. Investing is still something I do very actively in the uh, new space ecosystem. I have a venture capital arm of my own. But 
Through those engagements, I found this gem of a company, which is Mineric, where I'm the CEO today, an optical communications company that is targeting both aviation and space applications. And we are looking even further than that and uh, really revolutionizing the way we connect all these different nodes with each other. I think it's going to be a tremendous step forward. So I've joined them in 2019 at, in March, and uh, it's been almost... It's almost a three-year anniversary since I joined, and we've had a tremendous ride so far. Yeah, let's let's obviously expand a lot on on that because I mean, like you said, you joined New Space before it probably even had the name New Space. I don't know when Rick and the other guys came up with that term New Space. It was maybe around the same time, but and then you were in it and you joined Mineric sort of basically 14 years later or so. But you had a better overview of stuff that's going on in space than pretty much anybody else, right? Typically these days, you know, when I as a venture capitalist, when I approach investors, you really have to still explain like, look, this is the space sector, and you have launch, you have your you have comps. For you, that wasn't the case. You really had a good overview of what's going on. So what made you choose Mineric and optical communications? What fascinated you? As you said, I think I got to, I got to experience the space sector growing to what it is today, going through a complete transformation. And in the space sector, what has happened to date is very parallel to the PC revolution that happened in computing. Before there was PCs, there were workstations and supercomputers, and there were, there were uh, all these different aspects that only allowed a very limited set of people to gain any kind of value out of the coal computing infrastructure. The PC revolution now happened in space, where you can really, you, when you realize what uh, it's, uh, the launcher revolution with this, what SpaceX did, it opened space to business. And now getting to space has become incredibly cheaper. And business aspects now make sense that didn't make sense about 20 years ago, because let's face it, getting to space is about 20 times cheaper. But that's just the first revolution. And if you look at the history of uh, computing, you see the parallels now to the space industry. And what needs to be done in the space business now is taking all these disparate, different aspects of space and making a coherent network out of it. PCs really got to their element and really started having an effect on the whole population in everything we do from industrial to personal to military to government. When we started networking them, when they started interacting with each other, when the PCs started communicating with each other. What we do with Mineric is exactly that step for the space sector, for the aviation sector. When you think about a satellite today, it is a very unconnected single asset flying around in space, only, only giving use uh, as a single entity to the user below it. What we're doing in Mineric is that we are building hardware that allows these satellites to communicate with each other. So we can build meaningful networks up there, and that has a profound effect on the type of business you can do with it. And when I saw that quantum leap in technology, what, what uh, it can do to the business, what it can do to the utility of space in everyday life, in the, uh, in the governmental realm, in the business realm, I decided this was an enabling technology I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, and it's 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 funny. Um, one of your colleagues, so uh, CEO of another company like Mineric, we shall not mention his name, but he always says that at the moment we are basically in the equivalent of the dial-up internet when it comes to satellite connectivity. And something tells me you you probably wouldn't disagree with that in terms of the speeds and the bandwidths and all of that. I am- 
absolutely agree. Today, when you when you want to make a network out of satellites and you do not have optical communications technology, you have very low bandwidth available. When you use radio technology to communicate between satellites, the power efficiency isn't there, the sizes are large, and the bandwidth is very low. A very good example is um, a well-known uh, constellation out there that actually networks its satellites. For the same amount of power, that we consume to do an optical communication gets a few megabits across. Today, Mineric is working on capabilities that are in the terabits range. So the, the leap, the quantum leap is huge. It's multiple orders of magnitude. And then you can move that much data uh, between satellites within a constellation or even between constellations. Now things make more sense. Think about the example that a communications constellation can talk to an Earth observation constellation. An Earth observation constellation of imaging can talk to a synthetic aperture radar constellation. And you want, now we can mold all of that data and do a, uh, I want to say, a, a solution that really consumes all of that data in space and finally really give real answers on the ground. Without this technology, what you have to do is get every satellite, every every asset information down one by one. You have to first wait for it to have like a ground pass or something. And you have to wait for that information to get down. And then you have to stitch the data on Earth. We allow all of that to happen in space. Yeah, which is sort of like a lot of people talk that we're sort of starting or we will soon start to have maybe we'll have a data bottleneck in space, right? Because every EO constellation, for example, we signed up there is just generating so much so much data, right? And so you, you got to do something, right? And like you said, probably connecting every single satellite to a ground station is not is, is, is not the best solution, <laughs> the best architecture. Yeah, if you think about it operationally, it's a large headache to have that many ground stations. And you, you're now getting to a point where the density is increasing that um, you don't even get your whole path dedicated to. There's another satellite to be serviced right away. So overall, there is definitely the bandwidth bottleneck. But I'd like to highlight another bottleneck, or as I want to say a uh, Achilles heel in Earth observation, and that's latency. Let's face it, for the time you take actually an image until you have the opportunity to downlink it, in the best case, you have tens of minutes. In the worst case, you have hours. And in in that in that period where the data is fresh, you're not utilizing it. The data is becoming more and more stale by the minute. It's losing its value, but you're waiting for a ground station pass, and that's that's a that's a, that's a problem for Earth observation. What you're looking for is to get that data near live to its customer that has a much more value when it is like that. And what the, and our optical communications technology allows that. You have a network, you can bring the data to the, uh, to the uh, location it's needed and download it quasi-live. And that change, that for me is a big, big enabling technology that's a huge step up. It's a value generation for our customers and their customers. Um, may it be in the governmental side today, if I'm looking at Ukraine, uh, you don't want to have the images yeah. four hours late. You want to have it now, but also in the commercial side. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll get to the military part. I mean, that's clearly very, very timely and uh, I, think, I think very relevant. I guess as an aside on, on sort of the whole optical part, and you mentioned, I mean, even if we could get the data uh, to the ground, but let's say then it's needed in another part of the world, 
I mean, there's still some arguments that even then it's beneficial to go through space, right? I mean, isn't there something like the speed of light is actually much faster in the vacuum than it is in fiber on the ground? I mean, that, that might be a very marginal effect, but it, I guess it's relevant for some applications. Um, apples to apples comparison, of course, the speed of light is more than 40% faster uh, than it's not going through fi uh, fiber optics, but it's going through free space or just air. Um, of course, you have that, you have that advantage. Um, you, of course, have the penalty of going up and down in each case. So, but for any two locations in Earth where the, uh, that are sufficiently apart, so we're talking maybe about a thousand, fifteen hundred uh, kilometers apart, suddenly space becomes the fastest uh, communication from A to B. Um, there are tremendous applications exactly that can utilize that, especially in the financial network. So it doesn't always have to be military yeah. the financial yeah. network every single millisecond counts when you're in the high-speed trading realm and everything yeah. Yeah. yeah so overall there is utilization for this kind of drop in latency yeah you mentioned the up and down um let's quickly talk about that so that's uh, when i talk to people in the opticals comps world they always tell me that's the most difficult part like when you're in space you're sort of uh well you're in vacuum right but if you, if you go back to ground at least ground on the earth right and we will talk about other places as well like the moon you have this atmosphere right which i think messes things up right is where are we on that sort of like linking things are you planning on linking the satellites to the ground optically as well or where, where do we stand on that um I would say that the optical communications technology, just like any other technology, is a complementary to the to the whole technology stack up we have on on Earth. And you're absolutely right. It's not an end all be all. There is definitely difficulties in using optical communications for ground communications. There are cases where it just doesn't work, like when there when there is a cloud in the way. But when it does work, and it, uh, the, in certain places in the world, that, that cloud cover is just isn't there. There are cloud-free locations around the world. Um, you have tremendously more uh, bandwidth, and you get to utilize that that advantage very very well. So it's for our customers to design a system that uses radio and optical communications for the best final results, and we end up being complementary. If I am doing a direct downlink in the middle of Germany, I'll probably use radio because I'm more worried about optical communication, but if about cloud cover. But if I'm doing connecting a whole constellation to the ground, and I always have satellites over places like Hawaii, Grenada, um, Gibraltar, uh, uh, Seychelles, there's all these places that are historically cloud-free. That's a tremendous capability. I can concentrate all my data there and do the downlink there. So overall, yes, optical downlink is never going to be an end-all, be-all, but it's going to play a very distinct role in being able to downlink tremendous amounts of data. Additionally, uh, of course, we have to work on the technology stack up, but it's it has a lot of headroom. Today, we're working on the 10, uh, 10 gigabit downlinks, but there are solutions. It's not solution. Uh, it's not a solutionless problem. We can go to the 100 gigabits or terabits as we understand how to deal with the atmospheric effects. And uh, I can tell you that Minerk has a lot of research that is going exactly in that direction on how to deal with this atmospheric distortion that happens in our in our uh, in our uh, in our communication up and down from the spacecraft and i can tell you that our experience doing aircraft to aircraft communication is highly uh, applicable to that as well. so 
but whether it's uh, ground to space, space to ground, or in space, basically sort of the heritage technology, if you will, is is radio frequency, right? And sort of, but but optical has these like obvious advantages, some of which we already touched upon. How do you see sort of the um, what do you want to call it? The, the substitution curve or speed or sort of like optical taking over market share from, from RF. Where are we there on this curve and how do you see this playing out? I, w- I don't want to say it's a substitution because what has happened up until now is that the RF technology was so limited, it only saw being, uh, we only saw it being used in very few instances and not to the extent that optical communications will allow data exchange between satellites. It was really the satellites were using it to exchange the most rudimentary information between them. So it's really an adoption rather than a substitution. And the adoption is happening fast. We have constellations like Starlink. We have constellations like the Space Development Agency's constellation. We have Blackjack. We have uh, OneMap. We have so many different uh, users that are talking about their infrastructure completely built around the optical communication between between satellites. There is Telesat, there is, uh, I think uh, there's so many to count right now. There's the Amazon. Uh, and when, what we all hear from them is it is a enabling technology that has to happen and there it has no substitution in the radio world. This is the thing that actually makes those constellations at all plausible. Sure, you can do some limited constellation work. I think the early OneWeb and Starlink showed that, that you can do some amount of broadband deployment without optical inter-satellite links, but they were so limited that it actually doesn't make sense to put up a whole constellation of these. It's only just a start and uh, adoption is happening. And we are seeing over and over again, the tweets and the posts that say, Next, uh, here, here's another batch of, batch of satellites, and the big upgrade was the optical comp. So I think, I think this is coming in very high numbers. Um, we as miners, we anticipated that, and we knew that the, this is not going to be a gradual increase. It's going to be a step, uh, step increase, a step, and it required a step response from our side, that it's going to be a few terminal people trying it out, and then a mass adoption and a and a demand for uh, demand for optical comms in in very high numbers, very fast. Anticipating that, we made ourselves ready. We built factories. We built the cap- capabilities. We adopted the de- uh, we adapted the design so it can be mass produced. We made ourselves ready for this oncoming sudden increase in demand for optical comms. Yeah. By the way, as an aside, so. Obviously, laser technology has been around for a while, and I think I, 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 I'm blanking on the name now. There was, for example, a European like long-range laser comm system um, in, in space, right? Why has the commercial side? Why is this only happening now? Is this a question of sort of cost, or were, were people waiting for? Uh, was there some additional technology, or were people waiting for more space heritage, or sort of combination of all of the above? Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the program that you're talking about is Idris, the European Data Relay System. Uh, amazing technology. Uh, yeah, out of out of a geo a stationary orbit, connecting uh, assets via optical comms. Um, fantastic technology. But overall, it was a different realm, and that's a different product than what it is needed today. Not every optical comms is the same, and that is a, that was a very institutional mission that required that 
tremendous optical capability at any cost. And uh, the resulting device, uh, the resulting optical communications terminal, from its size, from its power consumption, from its cost, wouldn't allow a mass adoption. That's exactly what MyNerd has been working on for many, many years, is taking that optical comms technology and making that step forward in in building the building the uh, product that meets the demands of a mass adopter. And what are those demands? They needed to be small. They needed to be cheap. But they also needed to be available in large numbers. So it wasn't as simple, let's change here and there a few parameters. It was a complete from the ground up rethink of the product. We had to rethink how you build precision optics. Um, we had to throw away a lot of different solutions that allow it to be possible because they did not meet the cost or size profile. And we had to think about how one builds um, a telescope that is almost lab-grade, but out of the cheapest materials in a process that can be done in the, in the shortest amount of time, so it can be repeated without having an army of machines that is also, uh, also probably unattainable. So that was the work over several years, and we have now come to fruition over last year, and we have qualified these capabilities. We have built these capabilities together. We have qualified the resulting products, tested them, and we are ready to build our space heritage as well. And that's exactly what the, uh, what the customers wanted. They wanted the qualified yet cost-effective product, and that's what we have built um, that allows them to buy these terminals in the hundreds, if not thousands, for a price that still closes their business case. In terms of the price, I mean, many of these use cases will use um, probably small sets, right? So, and, and then I guess, you know, people would hope that these days a small set would cost something like, let's, let's say like a few hundred thousand euros or dollars or something like that. And then with the laser terminals, correct me if I'm wrong, but many times it's not just one, but if you have a mesh network, there may even be four of those on the satellite, right? So, so really they they can't be that expensive, right? Otherwise, you would really blow this, the entire satellite cost out of proportion. Yes, I would say that there are um, two use cases, and I think they, the two use cases require two different solutions. Um, one of them is, of course, the uh, nano and pico satellites, the CubeSats of the world, a couple of kilograms or maybe 10, 15, 20 kilograms. Um, that requires a very small, very, very small laser communications terminal. Um, then there is the use case for the constellation, uh, constellations like the one, the mega constellations and the government constellations you're talking about, where the satellite's about, I want to say, somewhere between 200 and 400 kilograms. The two solutions are different. One of them requires the satellite to do a lot of the work, so it can be really tiny, but that doesn't, uh, that doesn't allow a tremendous payload then. Or in the other case, in the constellation case, you have the satellite that is more geared towards uh, providing a tons of bandwidth to the ground, and um, and therefore it's a little bit larger and it can accommodate also a little bit more complex optical communication terminal. I can tell you that today's mineric mineric solution, the Condor Mark III, is tailored towards the constellation customer, the little bit larger satellites that um, that have that have that. I want to say the biggest impact from uh, from adopting uh, optical comps, but it's also no secret that we are always eyeing and have the technology in-house to make the small one happen as well for the CubeSat customer. And I would not be surprised that um, uh, very soon that's a, that's a market we would enter. 
we're sort of a, a journalist podcast, so we never go super deep into technology, but I'm going to ask sort of like a semi-technical question anyway. How does the sort of the, the, the pointing work? I guess it's one thing if you're sort of like within like the same plane communicating, but like if you're sort of like this mesh network and like satellites are sort of like zipping by in different planes, that that seems non-trivial. Is that all sort of like solved these days? Oh, yeah. Um, that, that's definitely the, uh, the the question you're asking is definitely the uh, the crux of the optical communications um, difficulty, like the things that you have to solve. And there are, as you said, multiple cases of doing uh, optical communication. The easiest one, as you said, is in-plane communication. So you're constantly talking to the satellite to the front and the satellite to the back. That's the easiest because you're pretty much never letting that satellite go and it's for you almost uh, appear stationary the one more difficult one is uh cross uh cross plane meaning you have a satellite flying left of you in the same direction and you kind of uh you kind of have to track that as it slowly moves around the tougher one is what we call a cross seam communication where you're flying north the other satellite is going south but you're going side by side and then the other satellite is whizzing by you and yeah, the, so the relative speeds are really high yeah. Exactly. Okay. It's like if you think about it, that these satellites travel at twenty-eight thousand kilometers an hour. The relative speed is tremendous. And then, of course, the the, the really difficult one is cross-shell communication, where you have a constellation at one altitude and you have a constellation at another altitude, and you need to do uh, communicate in between. And there, the, our orbits aren't even compatible with each other. Overall, these are the different scenarios that we that we can support, and Miner supports all of them. Um, the way it works is, and thank you for uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to geek out a little bit. After all, it is a space podcast. <laughs> Part of our audience requires this too. <laughs> exactly. So the way you do it is, we get from the satellite the approximate position of our communication partner, and it can be in our Condor Mark III terminal up to eight thousand kilometers away, and we get this position of our of our target satellite that says, hey, at this time, it's going to be at this position with this, uh, with this vector. And we start pointing towards that coarsely with a, uh, with a slow-moving mechanism. And we start searching for that satellite in, uh, in space with a very fast-moving mirror that is inside of our, inside of our telescope. The telescope moves in multiple hundred hertz. And what, what is happening is that satellite is sending you a laser, and you're moving around your laser. One of them is a master, the other one is a slave. And at some point, um, they find the flashes from each other, and they lock on each other. Once you have actually locked onto your communication target, you use the laser coming from that other satellite to track its location. Now you don't need the satellite telling you where it is. You can actually mm -hmm. tell the satellite where it is with a higher accuracy, but you start tracking each other and we are in a tracking mode and we don't lose each other. And our, uh, both our fast steering mirrors and our course pointing systems are fast enough to keep up with the motion of the other satellite. And that is not just because of motion, because if you have to think about it, these satellites are also vibrating and the vibration alone can keep you uh, from mm -hmm. losing, uh, losing targets. So overall, those fast moving mirrors do all of that. And uh, to really just kind of frame it, how amazing of a capability this is. Our target on the other satellite is another terminal with an opening of about eight centimeters. So if you think about the job, it is from one satellite shooting another satellite with a laser, which is really this tiny little beam, 
8,000 kilometers away while both are traveling at 28,000 kilometers an hour. Both are vibrating and we are hitting a target eight centimeters in diameter. So overall, this is the same as shooting something from LA to London and hitting a, uh, like a, a saucer. Okay, I don't know whether we should get into this or even can, but sort of like this just brought up sort of like a thought of dual use in my mind. Um, couldn't you conceivably also use that to sort of blind enemy satellites, so to say, this type of capability? So our dual use doesn't come from the, I want to say, the blinding aspect. Actually, the opposite. I think optical communications is very unique in the way that um, when you are communicating to another satellite, the incoming uh, optical beam is very concentrated from a specific location, and you're blind to everything else coming from any other direction. So you're really concentrated on that single point in space. So what optical yeah. communication does to you is it, it gives you a secure connectivity that the communication doesn't go everywhere, but only to its intended recipient, so it can't be tapped. What's also interesting is because you're blind to every other source, you are also jam-free. No one can interrupt your communication. So yeah. these two combined, of course, have a, quite a large effect on the way the um, governments and the military see it. And that's where the dual use comes from. You have a low probability of detection and a low probability of intrusion uh, communication yeah. system, which, if you think about it today, is the backbone of a lot of the, uh, of a lot of the governmental military comms networks that they want to build. Today, of course, when you're thinking about, I'm going to fly over, uh, fly over a contested territory or a geography where no one wants me to communicate, one of the things that you expect the most is that you're going to get uh, your radio signals jammed from the ground. And oh. our, our optical communications allow you to communicate in that scenario without any interruption. What they also allow you to do is when your GPS signals get jammed, you can use your laser uh, communication also to find where you are again without the use of any of the GPS satellites. Yeah, that's actually very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And so that, that actually is another key advantage of optical, which we hadn't discussed, is the sort of um, the, the fact it's a tight beam, hard to interfere, and so forth. Um, I guess the other thing we also haven't discussed, which is I guess less on the military but more on the commercial side, is correct me if I'm wrong, but for the moment this is also basically sort of like um, what do you want to call it, like regulation or licensing free compared to radio frequency, right? Absolutely. Um, that is one of the unique features of optical comms is that it can take you out of the giant bureaucracy, the amount of work that is needed to get uh, spectrum rights in space. We know that can be a year-long or if not more process to get, uh, get use of any spectrum in space. And we know why that is, because radio technology is based around a communication that goes everywhere. And when we talk about radio communication, we talk about victim systems, meaning if I'm talking to, a, if A is talking to B, that communication also goes to C and it can interfere with C. So we have to have a way to coordinate everyone communicate. And this is such a difficult problem, this coordination amongst all users this interference and whatnot, we have built one of the world's largest bureaucracies to deal with it. That's the the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, yeah. And in the U.S., that's the FCC that represents the ITU. And 
if you think about the amount of work that has has to be done by every company to become ITU and FCC uh, compliant, and the amount of money that's being spent there, that's that's a large burden on them. What optical communication does is when A talks to B, he is uh, there is never a C that is affected by it. There is never a victim system. Because of that, there is no reason for coordination between people communicating using optical comms. And multiple times the ITU and FCC said, uh, uh, not having any victims, not needing any coordination, we will not license the optical spectrum, and therefore we are spectrum-free. You can just decide to buy the terminals, bolt them onto your satellite, and communicate without any external coordination. Yeah, so that's, that's really quite... And, and I assume you don't really expect that to change either, because like you said, in comparison with RF, you just don't have these issues of interference, so hence why, why would you want to regulate it, right? Or do you see there's any sort of risk that it may get some regulation in the future? I, I don't see it. Um, I don't see any time soon a change to regulating optical comms. I think, I think even these organizations are excited about having a communications capability that, that can do very specific use cases without needing any coordination. And there is no victim, and I think this is going to enable a lot of other companies being able to deploy ad hoc communication networks as fast as they can build and launch them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's many sort of clear advantages we've talked about, right? Nevertheless, we sort of talked about adoption curves, right, and and things that, you know, some parts of the space community are more conservative and want more heritage and things like that. So in, in terms of your your ability to sell more units, right? Okay, so there's the military part, you know, people like SDA, and, and, and that's fine, right? But sort of commercial customers, somebody setting up a new constellation. How does that work at the moment? Is it, is it a lot of sort of like you guys trying to do outbound marketing or do you, do you actually... Is it, are we already at the stage where people kind of say, no, optical, I'm convinced, you know, I'm setting up a new constellation, I'm going to go to Mineric and, and, and order those terminals? I would say about two years ago, it used to be that we had to go out there and convince people that this was something that they absolutely have to have and that constellations didn't make economic sense if you didn't have uh, your satellites optically linked with each other. We have to go out there. We have to show capabilities. And we have to also show that it can be done. And it can be done as a mass adoption. In the meantime, the world has changed. We have seen what, of course, Starlink has done. And they have been, uh, to a certain extent, the uh, the uh, bar against which you measure yourself. And you see that they are... Uh, that they are concentrating on optical comms, that they see it as very important. And are, we see that the customer base is doing, uh, watching that and adopting optical comms for their, of, on their own as well. And one of the reasons why they are also feeling more confident about optical comms and they are now baselining it into their designs is the, uh, what the government is doing. The Space Development Agency now um, has already purchased satellites uh, that are utilizing optical comms in their SDA architecture tranche zero. And the upcoming tranche one is already featuring optical comms again. And Mineric has been playing a very large role in in those programs. And that alone, of course, is a seal of approval, not just for our company, but also for the technology. And that really is pushing the adoption. And Today's conversation with our customers isn't about technology and the adoption anymore uh, of our technology. It is the fact that we can build these in mass. And I can tell you that what really convinces 
the customer base and the industry for Mineric um, is when they come to Gilking, visit our factory and see a real factory building these in processes that are geared towards mass manufacturing. When they see our optical line capable of building multiple terminals a week, also multiple ter- ter- terminals a day, that convinces yeah. them. It's not the technology anymore. Now we have the technology curve behind us. It's the production side of things, and it's really seeing is believing. And once they once they set foot in the in the Minerics, uh production capabilities in Gilchim, just outside of Munich, but also seeing our capabilities we built already here in Los Angeles, that that they get convinced that this is something, that, that technology is there, that the mass producibility is there, and that Mineric is exactly has done the investments to do that in mass. I mean, and, and that makes sense because we have some very large proposed constellations out there right now, right? I mean, um, both in the in Americas as well as in Europe, like constellations with many thousands of satellites, right? And then again, if if each satellite actually has multiple terminals, you really do need this this mass production, like even even more than you need it on this on the satellite bus side, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you need you need a terminal that's easy to integrate. You need a terminal that is built for these buses, uh, easy to command, and um, and you need terminals that you are very confident that once you make a, make a choice of or of your vendor, you're not going to have delays in the first ones being delivered. And when the first one starts hitting your loading dock, that there is truckloads of it coming every week. You yeah. Our our customers talk about satellite number of satellites per day, something we would never think about in the past. And when you're yeah. thinking satellites per day, and you already mentioned it earlier, and you have four terminal per satellite in most of the communications constellations, you come to some very large numbers very fast. And we as miner worked very hard to get here to build a company and the infrastructure that can do that. And so you're confident on sort of like, you know, somebody comes to you with an idea for a new constellation and let's say they have the financing sorted out and you know what the architecture looks like and they'll need like, you know, whatever is like 2000 terminals over the next three years. At this point in time, you guys feel confident that you probably can accommodate that. A 2000 terminals over the next three years is actually, I would say, a medium order, like a medium order as we think about it. Uh, If you think about some of these, uh, some of these uh, constellations, they are in the, their deployment speed is already at about 1000 satellites a year. And if you think about a 1000 satellite a year, we're talking about a 4000 terminals a a year uh, production line. So Yes, we feel very confident in that. Not only because of the infrastructure we have, which is tremendous, and it already is at 2,000 terminals a year capacity, but because also the research and uh, research we have done about making that scalable. I talked earlier about uh, doing this all-metal optics. This whole-metal optics was not just a... uh, a research we did to make the telescope cost efficient. One of the other uh, side effects of having an old metal telescope and this whole design was to make sure its production is scalable. The machines with which we make these telescopes, these uh, terminals, and all the processes are based on commercial off-the-shelf machinery with very simple processes that are easy to make parallel, that to make uh, to make multiple copies of. So when a customer comes to us and wants a very large order, and it is above our current capacity of 2,000, 
thousand terminals a year. It is easy for us in in a matter of half a year to nine months. We can stand up that additional capacity. It doesn't have to be years to set that factory up. And I assume these days this would be fairly. I mean, so this is a historical like image some people have of satellite integration, right? You know, clean room, a bunch of guys in white coats manually putting stuff. I assume this is fairly automated at this point, right? It is fairly automated, and it's very highly parallelized. I think those those two are very important. I think one should not really overestimate just automation because even if I'm completely automated, if the process itself takes weeks to finish uh, the polishing of a single mirror. Automation is not going to save. There is multiple angles that you have to master to be able to build multiple thousand terminals a year. And one of them is really uh, looking at the machining times, looking at the plating times, the integration, the testing, and how many of those need to be serial, how many of them need to be parallel, and the infrastructure to be able to do maybe 10, 15, 20 in parallel. And we exactly have done that. And we have the experience on how to do that. That's exactly what our customers see when they come and visit our factory in, in just outside of Munich. So it looks like, I mean, from a corporate strategy point of view, you guys are doing, you, you, it sounds like you almost solved the technology side. You, you, you seem you're very advanced if, if maybe you have solved the manufacturing side, which is really not trivial at all, right? It's like Elon sometimes says, it's really easy to build something once, but it's really hard to mass produce something. So what, what is your sort of biggest, um, I don't know, to-do item, what do you want to call it now? Is, is it sort of expanding the commercial side or... I would say it's for minor. It is this constant moving, uh, constantly keeping us challenged. I I could say yes. With Condor Mark III, we have built the technology that we need to hit the demands of today. But as a company, we are always eyeing what can be done further. With 10 megabits, as I said, 10 gigabits and 100 gigabits today, we are only scratching the surface of what optical communications can deliver. Um, just recently, we won a contract from the European Space Agency um, to look into the design of a terminal that can do one terabit. There's going to be mm -hmm. even more. There are going to be other technology steps to be done, longer distances, uh, higher speeds, uh, space-to-air communication, space-to-ground communication that is not affected by clouds or um, that can accommodate atmospheric effects even in the highest bandwidth. Um, there is, of course, the deep space communication, much higher accuracy, pointing navigation yeah. control. All of that bundled, we are constantly working on. Mineric is unique in the way that we don't wait for a customer contract to come around or a giant uh, government contract to come to say, this is the technology we want you to develop. We have an organization, our future technologies organization within Mineric, that always works on the technology that's going to be a part of our product for five years from now. So there is always this moving target that we give to ourselves, pushing the boundaries of what optical comms can do. And as you correctly said, we are not doing this future technology uh, development without understanding its manufacturing implications, making sure that we're not going to end up in a corner of technology that, can, that puts us in a place where we can only do one of these things. We always do these trial runs of future technology, ensuring that whatever technology that Mineric puts out on the market is also immediately available in mass. You, you mentioned deep space, and of course that sort of brings back the geek factor to some extent in, in a nice way. Are you guys looking at things like Cis Luna? I mean, there's going to be a lot of activity on the moon. It seems like we should, you know, sort of upgrade our communications infrastructure there as well. 
Um, yes, we get quite a bit of inquiries, and we know exactly how we would uh, how we would structure a project like that, and how we would make a system that supports cislunar communication. That being said, today I think we would do the best service to the optical comms industry just accompanying the adoption of optical comms in Leo, Mio, and in the air and on ground stations. So. Today's cislunar programs are singular in their nature. The amount, the demands for terminals are in the single digits. And that in itself is not our corporate focus. We are focused on the mass production side of things. Um, There will be that uh, breaking point where even cislunar, with the amount of talk that is happening around cislunar, that it's going to require a mass produced and cost-effective terminal. We are not there yet. We as minor know those technologies, we could go into that, but we are for now keeping our focus squarely on Leo, Neo, and those constellations. Okay, so coming back to those types of use cases, so one interesting piece of news was, I think, so at the end of last year, you guys are part of a consortium in Europe um, that's called, I think it's called Unio, which is uh, for the uh, you know, proposed European secure communications constellations. So two con- consortia were selected to, I think at this point in time, basically prepare proposals. So I- I'm not privy to how this consortium works, but it seemed to me like you were more than a mere supplier. You were really like a consortium partner. So what can you elaborate, elaborate a little bit of the thinking there? Was that sort of like trying to help create your own demand, having a showcase, a prestigious showcase, or what, what was the thinking there? I think with Unio, what we did, and um, I should probably say that this was not immediately linked to the birth of the European Secure Connectivity Initiative. It was something we have been thinking for quite some time before. Um, mm-hmm. With Unio, our idea was that there is a tremendous need for constellations, even in the industrial case that is going underserved. And we, we, as a couple of companies involved in uh, constellations, could serve that need, especially for the European customers. A really good example is automotive. Uh, the automotive companies are looking into their connectivity problems uh, quite closely and don't find today in the constellation realm a direct solution to their connectivity needs. There are others as well in the industrial Internet of Things, in, in the uh, other industrial sectors that require connectivity. So these three companies, this was Reflex Aerospace, ESAR Aerospace, and Mineric got together and started thinking about a European-based and for the European industrial base, a constellation. That was Unio, and we are talking very often to the industrial base in Europe on how they can benefit from the existence of that. Not too much after we started these conversations, of course, European, uh, the European Commission came up with its own use case for a constellation saying that they want a secure and independent connectivity initiative from space. And having UNIO in our hand um, as a concept, we applied, like many other consortia, of uh, building this uh, building elements of that uh, of that constellation, if not the full constellation, and that's what we uh, what, what we put forward that we would use our uh, Unio constellation for that initiative. Um, until now, what what happened is we are, we have been selected as one of the two winners out of a numerous. Uh, numerous uh, set of applicants and we are in the study phase on how we would we could um, we could 
fulfill the European Commission's desires. It's a very long laundry list of different use cases, some of them very unique, some of them more broad. And we believe that we have a a setup that can really uh, hit those use cases in a very scalable and a sustainable way. Uh, we have a, we have a couple of innovations that we are working on that is going to minimize the amount of spectrum usage, the amount the amount of launches, and similar. So all of it, all of that, we are quite confident that we have a large role to play in the European Commission's push for a uh, sovereign constellation. And you mentioned that in the lead up to sort of the European Union doing this is sort of the. I guess the industrial base starting to look at it as well. And that's a trend I find super interesting, right? And there's no actually a handful, at least a handful of examples of that, right? You, you mentioned automotive and uh, Porsche, of course, invested in, in ESA Aerospace, the launch company, and I think maybe even looking at constellations. Um, we've had recent sort of EO examples of companies like John Deere, Exxon, Rio Tinto, all talking about either their own constellations or at least partnering with constellations. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're following the same trend, right? And um, how do you think that's evolving? Absolutely. The trend is crystal clear here. And it's what makes me very excited about the space business. Um, space business has been in the past very often space for space's sake. And we are seeing more and more space being yet another chain in the whole global industrial network. It used to be, again, we see the parallels to internet and computing. It used to be that computing was there just for computing's sake and a little bit of engineering here and there. And once you made a mesh network and really put it in, put the capabilities in, in communications that it started affecting every single industry. Today, you couldn't sell shoes without the internet. Um, yeah. The same thing is, is very true for space, for the space business as well. Going through these transformations and these enabling technologies like optical comms, it's going to, it's going to insert itself into the complete industrial network. And people are going to see space yet as another asset that makes the industrial base tick. And that's what we are excited about. Like electricity, like AI, like the internet, basically. Absolutely. For everybody. Okay, that, that actually brings me very nicely in sort of sort of like you know closing questions. Um, I want to come back to sort of the, the the space vision at large, just because you have this benefit of you know having been in the in the sector for twenty years at this point in time. And it's going to be an unfair question because we could talk hours about it, but I'm going to ask anyway. So like, if you look back those twenty years and where where we are now, sort of like, is there anything that's surprising? Something that moved faster? Something that moved slower? Something that you know I don't know that's misunderstood? Uh, something that's over or under focused on? Just, I don't know, whatever springs to your mind. Um, I think I'm, I'm quite excited uh, for uh, where we ended up. In 2004, being just an engineer straight out of school, I didn't expect this amount of a revolu- revolution. I got into SpaceX, and uh, it was showing the world that space can be done commercially. And that was that was uh, fighting against windmills very often. And... Nowadays, we are at a point where we are talking, just as I said, it's like the PC revolution has happened. So no, no different than what happened in, uh, in the, uh, in, with Microsoft and whatnot, what really allowed the personal computing. And now we are talking about enabling technologies to insert that capability everywhere in what we do. So I'm quite excited and how fast that appeared. Two decades is not much time. And from being able to say, hey, at all, 
privatized and commercial spaces available to full-blown industrial space of thousands of companies. And now we're looking into the next big steps. And yes, there are some enabling technologies that will play a very big role here. Optical companies, the one that I chose is the one that's going to have the biggest impact. But I'm quite excited about how fast it grew. Um, were there surprises along the way? Yes, definitely. I um, think you, one can definitely not uh, foresee everything. I didn't realize that there was going to be such a big rush into uh, into launch. I think um, I, today, when you look at the world, the, the, the number of launch companies is almost as a disproportion to the satellite and the downstream business. I think we will see a change mm-hmm. there. I think the satellite business is going to become more and more established. And uh, I think what we're also going to see is our observation um, revolution when their data becomes live. Because then I think that data set that's available to every human, to every business is going to change drastically. Yeah, yeah. But if, if I think back myself, in 2004, I was a, um, a hedge fund investor. And every time like somebody's like uh, sh- like showed me a SPAC, I was like, well, that's a really exotic thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy you guys did a traditional listing at Mineric. Um, but, but anyway, so I'm going to ask my last question traditionally on the Space Business Podcast, which is about science fiction. Do, do you like science fiction? And if you have some examples of what you like? Oh, yeah. To, to, be, to, to the extent that I can do. Uh, interestingly, I'll give, give the answer a little bit differently. But yes, of course, when I grew up, it was, uh, first of all, you always start with cinema, the Star Wars, the Star Trek and whatnot. And everyone says Star Wars or Star Trek. I like them both. But of course, I, I got to say I'm the more Star Wars guy than the Star Trek guy. Um, okay. Overall, yeah, uh, as far as the series go, of course, interestingly, on science fiction, I was very often more on the robotics AI side of things, because I think when you're reading, um, the uh, the dilemmas there were more exciting to me. Uh, and uh, that's where I stayed. But overall, my science fiction uh, love men must have uh, rubbed off. And uh, my wife is an author for children's books, and she ended up publishing two space science fiction books herself for children. <laughs> Okay. Oh, that's awesome for children. I got to look that up. Okay. I'm going to, my closing note on that with science fiction is going to be that, and you probably noticed there is a number of science fiction um, sort of works where they basically, um, so for example, the expanse, and I'm pretty sure that for example, foundation has it as well, where in communications, whenever there's long range communication, they say, okay, we're going to send a tight beam. And I always thought oh, that's got to be laser. Absolutely. It doesn't get tighter than what we do. We've been talking tiny little mini ads. So yes, we are, we are that type team that you talk about in expense. <laughs> so that night, Bulan, we're very excited for you, for you, for Eric, uh, to, to bring type beam into reality for all of us. And thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you, Rafael. I really, really appreciate this conversation. And uh, thank you for your listeners for listening. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, 
or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.